How are we doing, guys? This is Fitter Food Radio, episode 106. And of course, I'm here with the amazing Keris, as always. And today, we do have a guest on the show. Some of you may have heard of this guy. Um, I hear of him a lot because Keris quite simply can't stop going on about him at the minute. <laughs> um, um, all, all good things, though. Um, we are very, very pleased to have Dr. Brian Walsh on the show today. Hello, Brian. Hi, how's it going? All the way from, where are you in the States again? Uh, Maryland currently, but uh, we, I don't think we're going to be here very much longer, so it doesn't matter where we are. I'm, I'm in Maryland, though. Okay, where, where, my geography is terrible. Where in, where in the States is that? Is that east? That's west? just right above Washington, D.C. Oh, okay, cool, nice. It's the home of the cookies, that's all I know. Maryland. Oh, the Maryland cookies. <laughs> yeah. So, as I say, Brian Walsh is kind of Keris's hero right now <laughs> so i think she'll do a probably a better job than brian himself of introducing him so Kerius, why don't you do the lead okay so first of all i came across you brian through tommy wood mutual friends oh. and i was uh, i actually approached tommy and said i feel so kind of confused and overwhelmed i'd kind of um, i'm a naturopath and i study functional medicine but there's always just so much kind of conflicting information going on when you're trying to do all this stuff and also with the functional medicine all the testing all the supplements it just felt like i practiced about four years and a lot of stuff, I was kind of distrusting some of the processes and it's a lot of supplement selling, that kind of thing. And I said to Tommy, I feel like I need to know biochemistry better than I do. Uh, he put me kind of on your radar and your courses and they've just kind of transformed how I practice and also just my understanding. And I've been able to, and I know you kind of, you can, when you introduce yourself, you'll talk about how you try to bridge the gap between kind of what we're doing as nutritional therapists, functional medicine practitioners and kind of mainstream medicine. But I work really closely now with a lot of GPs and doctors and, you know, I ask for tests that they acknowledge and recognize and are validated. And it's just made my whole kind of approach with clients firstly so much easier because we all work together. But yeah, I just, I'm I'm grateful. Your courses are absolutely phenomenal. I I really hope that anyone listening, if you're a personal trainer or, you know, nutritional therapist, naturopath, that you check out all your courses. Because for me, it has really kind of transformed. I'm so much more kind of confident in the processes now and what supplements I recommend and, you also have an amazing ability for repeating something over and over again. It's really difficult to get your head around. And so I usually get it by the third or fourth time, which I'm so relieved that you do that in the teaching process. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate that greatly. And what you just said is the exact reason why I do that is I try to create information that I wish I had yeah. when, I, when I was getting started. That would have made my life so much easier having known and understand certain things. So I'm really glad to hear that. I think that's, uh, that's really kind of you to say. Well, you, I now teach, I lecture at the College of Naturopathic Medicine and do a really similar thing, just not on the same level as you, you're another level. But I do, I kind of say it simplifies things if you know the physiology and you know cellular health. And, and again, that's something that you and Tommy talk about a lot. And yeah, I'm really grateful because it has simplified everything for me because I don't have Good. to go down these rabbit holes all the time. But It'd be really nice if you kind of introduced yourself a little bit more, though. Talk about your background and how you ended up in this position and kind of how you know what you know and why I decided to develop the courses with Char. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, I started out as a fitness professional, quite honestly. Um, I was, you know, for the same reasons that most people do, I loved exercise at the time. I was a heck of a lot fitter than I am now, and that's mostly because of five very young children that (laughs) occupy all of my time. Yeah, I did that. And then I was really into sort of orthopedics and, and corrective exercise. I became a massage therapist. 
and I've, I've always loved nutrition and how that works. Even as a kid, I, I would buy nutrition books, believe it or not, and, and read about it. But then I had clients that were asking me about nutrition, and, and that was kind of outside of my scope a little bit as a personal trainer and a massage therapist. So then I looked into naturopathic medicine, and that was this great degree that was sort of an umbrella and combined all this stuff, nutrition and herbs and homeopathy. We learned some chiropractic techniques and a little bit of acupuncture. So then I became a naturopath and I met my wife there. It was the best part of, of naturopathic school. Mm-hmm. I got out and it didn't take long. I was seeing patients and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was looking at blood. Chem- it started with blood chemistry. I was looking at these labs that I'd learned about and I was just, <clears throat> I'm embarrassed to say, but I would just kind of stare at them not really knowing what I was pretending I knew what I was looking at, but in my head, being like, I have no idea what any of this means. This is horrible. This patient is coming to me for me to help them. And I don't know what I'm doing. And so it all started. I'll never forget. It started with the, the marker albumin. And I thought, well, what is albumin? I never really learned what this is. And so I read everything there was to know about albumin. I felt so empowered by this that then I went on to another marker and another marker. And what I realized was, is that the more one from a clinical perspective, knows about physiology and biochemistry, everything else makes sense. To me, it was like that Keanu Reeves movie, The Matrix, that you can take the blue pill or the red pill, whatever it was. But the second that you take that pill, nothing ever looks the same again. And that the more I learned the basic stuff, the basic science, that I could go and listen to a podcast or read an article or read a scientific paper or go to a seminar and I knew enough to know when somebody was wrong, for example. So I got hooked, and I can't stop reading about this subject. There's never any, any lack. So where that I am today is I'm a naturopath. And I have five kids, all 10 and below. The most amazing woman in the world is, is my wife. Yeah. And what I do clinically is I try to combine the best of this sort of functional, nutritional, alternative medicine with conventional medicine. Yeah. Because what I found is conventional medicine – like, thank God they do what they do. We know so much about the body because of Western science. But where conventional medicine misses things, they're great at finding cancer and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But if it's not any of those things, then they kind of get stuck. They don't think of leaky gut or gluten sensitivity or candida infections or toxicity. On the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, what functional medicine does really well is all that stuff. They will find the food sensitivity in every mm-hmm. single person that walks through their door, but they're not good at looking for things like cancer and cardiovascular disease. And so what I try to do is combine the best. We're really all on the same team, kind of going the same direction, just doing it in slightly different ways. And I try to be a bridge between the two. So I think what functional medicine does is, is great, but we have our limitations. I think what conventional medicine does is also great, equally as great, but has limitations. And if we can combine those, the two efforts that both camps are making, I think we can ultimately help people more. So that's, that's kind of where I live as a, as a practitioner, I suppose. I mean, would you say, because <clears throat> over here in the UK, I'd probably say in recent years, there's definitely been much more of a crossover, hasn't there, between, yeah, you know, like uh, functional medicine practitioners, GPs, et cetera. Over here, we've got the likes of Dr. Chatterjee. I don't know if you've heard of him. So Yeah, I sat down with dinner one time, actually. Oh, yeah, yep. there you go. You know, and, and he's played a huge role in kind of like linking the two. He's been on TV. He's a great ambassador for it. So there's definitely that crossover starting to happen yep. here, which is fantastic. Are you seeing a similar thing in the States? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably – that's happening to different degrees 
it, it is happening. I, I'll just say an industrialized country. It's, it's, it's happening in India. It's happening everywhere. And I think that it's because at some point, conventional medicine, they have to realize their limitations and say, mm-hmm. this, this person is genuinely not well. They don't fit into any of our lab tests as to diagnosing them with something that we can actually diagnose them. So we need to start looking elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the other bit, which I think is great, is the number of, of published scientific papers now within the past decade showing that nutritional medicine or that even just nutrients that works that shows and here's what i like is herbs have a really long history they go back thousands of years but it wasn't until recently that we were able to look at specifically how they work in the body mechanistically so essentially what's happening is western medicine knows the pathways or sort of alternative medicine has these herbs that have worked for certain things for a really long time. And there's no doubt that it worked, but now they're coming together and saying, Oh, that herb worked on this because here's where it works in this pathway. And it's difficult at that point to argue that this isn't working because you have the evidence that it works, but now we know the pathways that it work. And that's the language. Well, that's a good way. Western science uses science and these pathways that's their language mm-hmm. and for us to have a conversation with them well i put it this way so you guys in the uk let's say you went to some foreign speaking country the better you knew their language the better you would be accepted and incorporated into their culture well conventional medicine is not going to come searching out us this is what really motivated me when i first started is i wanted to speak their language and their language was biochemistry and their language was physiology and their language was the scientific literature so instead of saying, hey, magnesium is really great for this, or you know, flax seeds are awesome for this, is to learn their language so that I could talk to them and convince them in their language that this stuff is legitimate. So I think that that's happening on a much larger scale, just simply because certain things can't be ignored anymore. I completely agree. And actually, I write to a lot of GPs now, and I'll put kind of references in. But I also, when I denote what I want testing and why, and it's always kind of their blood chemistry. I've actually had really positive kind of I said like dialogues with them, whereas before, not that I wasn't getting that, but you know, talking about cholesterol was a little bit of a gray area. So I'll just kind of give up on that. And but now I know I can kind of get certain markers, be it, you know, kind of just a complete blood chemistry, which is, you know, so insightful. And a few of them have kind of written back and said, you know, really want to know what you're doing. It looks really interesting and seeing positive results in the clients as well. And uh, someone fed back and said, um, she was actually trying to fall pregnant and just kind of doing the basics and, and some of the stuff that we do through food and nutrition and, and some supplements. And they kind of said, don't know what you're doing, but all your fertility markers are improving so much. And, and I was kind of asking right. her to test FSA, DLH, you know, all those kind of things. So once we, because we kind of entered into that, that, you know, on the common ground, it, there's now a mutual respect that's kind of developing. But I was just going to ask, how long do you think it will take? I've just done your glucose course, which is again, phenomenal. So interesting. How long do you think it's going to take before some of that information filters down into mainstream medicine in terms of like it, it takes a long time. Yeah. It takes a long time for it to even go in, into functional medicine, quite honestly. Yeah. It just it, it's because it just it depends on the the paradigm that that currently is in place and how dogmatic people are holding on to that paradigm, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if all of a sudden you say, well, the role of insulin is not to get glucose into cells, that, that's dogma right now. Yeah. And so to, to undo that is going to take some serious convincing. I mean, look at, let's look at, you brought up cholesterol. You didn't even mm-hmm. attempt that because it was 
that's so Im- embedded into yeah. the, the psyche of Western medicine and conventional medicine that to undo that is, is a huge, huge undertaking. But that's a really good model that just tells you like how imbued we are in this, in this, in this, these thought processes surrounding cholesterol. I mean, even in the general public, they're more concerned. There's a kind of a joke that you can run a test for HIV and cholesterol on a patient, and then they'll come in and they'll want another cholesterol market. They're like, "What's my cholesterol?" <laughs> like, because that's <laughs> doing this, obviously. That's it's kind of like guys in the in the gym. Like, how much can you bench press? For some reason, that is the that that's the, the, the benchmark for how strong somebody is, regardless of the fact that it's pretty much meaningless compared to others other lifts. So, I think that there's a certain amount of dogma that just exists, and it's it's hard to undo. But you touched on it perfectly. What you basically said without saying it is you learned how to speak their language. You looked at their biomarkers on a blood chemistry test. You know the physiology of it so that now you can have a conversation with them. And all, and they you go to science. So if you can present a couple papers to them, like bilirubin is a classic one. Low bilirubin is a, is a problem. It's a marker of oxidative stress. It's a, uh, an increased risk of mortality. That all you need to do is say, here's bilirubin. Here's how it works physiologically which makes sense to them yeah. uh, is a mark of oxidative stress or lipid peroxidation and then show them the papers and they're then all of a sudden they're like, well, you know what? You're right. And now from now on, anytime I see a bilirubin that's a little bit low, I'm going to consider that as a problem. And so you just convince them because you spoke their language and that's how I think these things will get incorporated in terms of how long it takes. I mean, it, it just, like I said, it depends on how dogmatic uh, people are about uh, a given topic. Do you get a lot of doctors approaching you for training or doing your courses or are you not sure because you don't really know what the profile necessarily is of people who are doing your... Yeah, you know, I do. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm a pretty low-key kind of humble guy. So I'm, I'm still... Too, too humble, by the way. <laughs> I still marvel at the fact, like, no kidding, I will get uh, an email from a medical doctor in South Korea. It's like, I love your stuff. Your videos are so good. Thank you so much. Or like a pharmacist in India or mm-hmm. Pakistan or Argentina or, or wherever. And I just, I, I can't believe that what I have to say and how I say it is, is helping so many people. Um, it, it depends on the, the country, I think, to some degree. Yeah. Um, I, I do find that conventional medicine, I don't want to say, I'll say uh, healthcare providers uh, tend to be more open-minded Outside of the U.S. has been my experience. So here in the U.S., I think it's more chiropractors, nutritionists, naturopaths, fitness professionals. But yeah, I get these emails, and it's humbling. It's really humbling to know that you know some doctor in South Korea is watching these videos, and it's it's informing how she's she's seeing her patients. It's kind of cool. Really cool. So we said we were going to talk about detoxification today as a as a kind of subject. You requested it, didn't you? Matt said, "I want to talk about detox." And I thought, why don't we kick off with, because obviously detox is, Keris and I were talking about this the other day, like the word detox is a bit of a buzzword. It's marketing spiel and people just whack detox on anything. And and the detoxing industry is no doubt globally worth billions. You know, you get detox teas, smoothie juice fasts, et cetera, et cetera. There's even kind of functional medicine versions of those where you have the kind of detox drinks like for, which medical shape we have done and, and matt hated with a passion didn't you yeah Gave up on day five and went out and had steak and chips damn right <laughs> so, <laughs> so i thought why don't we start off with some of the myths that are kind of out there taking people's money in that if they buy this product and drink these juices or whatever they may be you know whatever the potion is 
and it's going to meet, lead to weight loss, fat loss, you know, super duper healthy liver, et cetera, et cetera. Like, why don't we put some of those to bed from the off? What, what are the kind of most irritating Well, yeah, ones? to do so, I think what I'll do, if it's all right, is tell you the story of how I, I even started down this path in the first place. So the honest answer is I have been aware of all those things that you were just saying for a very long time, even before naturopathic school. I read the books, you know, that said you're going to die if you're because you're toxic, you need to detoxify. These things are all polluting us and, and all these things. And I, and I, you know, I believed in it. But what happened was, there was a colleague of mine that was describing a portion of detoxification, specifically phase three. And we can briefly talk about that in a little bit. But I was talking about phase three based on what this detox expert was saying phase three was. And it didn't jive with what I thought it was. And I thought, well, if this detox expert is far smarter than I am and is saying phase three is this thing, let me just go into the literature. Let me, let me go into PubMed. Let me look at what the science says phase three actually is. And so I went in with this open mind and, and a few things happened. And you guys know how literature search does is, you know, it's kind of like Netflix. You watch one show and then they show you all these other great shows that you can watch based on this. So you read one paper and that links to another paper and that links to another paper. Next thing you know, you've read a dozen papers. And in this like hour and a half, a few things happened. Number one, this detox guru was referring to phase three incorrectly. And I have a problem with that. Because he taught this colleague of mine and she was referring to phase three incorrectly. So then it just passes down this, this yeah, massive yeah. misinformation. And, then, and I, that's a problem for me. I try not to do that as much as I can. It happens. And I'm not blaming this guy. But another thing happened was is I realized that there was a phase zero detoxification. And never in my entire life had I ever heard anybody ever talk about phase zero. There was phase one, phase two, and phase three. And that was detox. I thought, well, wait a minute, there's a phase zero. How come I've never, ever come across this ever in my career? And then the third thing that happened was I read a couple of papers, and this really blew me away. This was kind of the nail in the coffin, was I read about something. It's called a biphasic effect of certain nutrients or herbs or compounds. And basically what these papers said was certain herbs or compounds, like curcumin or whatever, at a low dose stimulated certain detoxification pathways but then at a high dose, inhibited those exact same pathways. And then I sat back and I thought, of, I mean, I was like, wait, wait a minute. What did I just read? Because I thought about it. And you guys just touched upon this. A lot of detoxification programs have supplements, have powders or, or capsules that you're supposed to take to help you detoxify. And what's in those is isolated, concentrated forms of these botanicals and herbs and compounds. And I was like, well, wait a minute. So if the amount in food stimulates detoxification and the amount that's maybe found in these capsules inhibits detoxification, how can we even begin to say that these are detoxification programs? And so when I read those three, A, that the phase three was being talked about incorrectly, that there was this thing called phase zero that I'd never heard about before, and that maybe what we were doing was actually blocking detoxification as an industry. I was like, all right, forget everything that I thought I knew. Forget everything that I had taught people, quite honestly. I was talking to patients about. And I, and I sort of I cleared out my brain. I cleared out my, off my desk. And I started reading as much as I could. And it took a few months and something like 300 papers later, I tried to answer exactly what you were just saying. I started from scratch. I was like, well, I've heard we're toxic. Are we really toxic? I have no idea. Let me look at what the literature says. Um, we hear that this stuff is stored inside of us, right? This is, is that a myth or is it reality? I wanted to find out. We would say that uh, you, you probably heard that the dose makes the poison. 
Yeah. And in conventional medicine, they say, well, the, the doses that we're exposed to is so low, it doesn't cause problems. We have our own internally built detoxification system, so it's not a problem. Was that true? Something in our industry we talk about is the synergistic effect. Is there a synergistic effect of multiple exposures all simultaneously? Also, I had heard about how damaging these things were. I'm like, well, why? What are these toxins really doing inside of our body? And so that's how I started. Are we toxic? Does this stuff get stored? Can you even test for these kind of things? And then after I had answered all those questions for myself, then my big question was, okay, what does the science say is the best, most effective and safest way to, is there a way that we can get rid of these things if they are? So in terms of the myths, I can tell you irrefutably based on what I read and I show in my courses and the actual papers that we are exposed. There's no doubt about that, that you look at these, what are called large population biomonitoring studies of tens of thousands of people worldwide, industrialized countries and not, we all have exposure. The next question is, is do they get stored? And again, irrefutably, I have, I have tons of papers to show this, absolutely it gets stored in, in us, which is a bigger conversation. It turns out that the dose doesn't matter, that a low dose of certain things causes just as much damage as a high dose, that there is a synergistic effect, that these do cause damage. And man, when you look at the studies that correlate certain chronic conditions with toxin, like call it toxin or xenobiotics or environmental pollutants, uh, exposure, there are some compelling studies that say that environmental pollutants might not just contribute to diabetes, but might even cause diabetes. They might cause obesity. It might cause dementia and Alzheimer's and neurodevelopmental disease and infertility and PCOS and uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension. And so that's all. And to get back, Karis, to what you're saying, this is in the literature. But these poor conventional medicine doctors who are seeing 50 patients a day don't have time to be reading these things, but it is absolutely in, in there. What I think some of the myths might be is that you can simply drink some, do a juice fast and magically purify your body. It doesn't happen that way. Or you can do a, a colon cleanse and then I'm detoxifying my body. And what I came up with, if this is a good time for this, that there's three things and I'm kind of a teacher at heart. So I, I, I like to try to teach people principles and then they can use there's three things, and this kind of speaks to your myths, I think, a little bit. There's three things that must, with a capital must, be in place in order for anything to call itself a detoxification program. So the first thing that, it, because they are stored, and there's no question about this, because they're stored, you have to mobilize these things. You have to get these things out of the cells and into the blood in the first place. The second thing that you have to do is you have to make sure that the detoxification pathways, which we can talk about, are optimized. So it's great that you're flooding your body with these toxins. And oh, remind me to touch upon fat loss as it pertains to toxin exposure and thyroid hormone and metabolism and all these other things. It's mind blowing. But so you, if let's say we're mobilizing, now these things are floating around in our bloodstream. Awesome. If we don't make sure the detox pathways are running well, then so what? They just are swimming around in our bloodstream and they're not getting detoxified. Then the third thing that must happen is you have to excrete these things. So the three things that are needed is you have to mobilize, you have to detoxify, and you have to excrete. So now saying that, going back to your question about myths, name the detox protocol or formula or thing and tell me if it fits those three categories, like a foot bath. 
That supposedly detoxifies the body, right? Does that mobilize anything? No, it doesn't mobilize the thing. Does it improve detoxification pathways? Not that we know of. Does it help with excretion? I mean, I'm going to say no, because those things I think aren't, aren't real. But one might say that will, will therefore a foot bath detoxify you? And I'll say no. How about a colon cleanse like a, or, or a colonic? I was going to say coffee enemas. Coffee. Okay, shoving anything up your rectum (laughs) and and cleaning it out does nothing for mobilization (laughs) and does nothing for, nothing arguably, uh, for increasing detoxification. Maybe excretion, right? But if you don't mobilize and detoxify first, then you don't have as much to excrete. So then you could say, well, how about a, a juice cleanse, which are really popular? So a juice cleanse you're going to be hypocaloric. You're not eating a lot of food. And that does increase mobilization. If you go on a calorie-restricted diet, in every single mammal study ever done that I've looked at, your levels go up, period. So if you are on a hypocaloric diet, calorie-restricted diet, then your levels you did mobilize. Great. Does it increase detoxification pathways? Well, that depends on what you're juicing. And in the literature, there's some suggestion that the things that people normally juice might actually inhibit detoxification. Things like carrots and celery and apples in a concentrated amount might actually inhibit. I'm not saying they're bad. It's all in context. Might actually inhibit detoxification. And the things that would enhance it, like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and cabbage, people generally aren't juicing. So on a juice <laughs> fast, you are, I mean, broccoli juiced, it doesn't juice. You are mobilizing. Because you're in a cat, you're just drinking juice. You're calorie restricted. You are mobilizing. Period. But are you increasing detoxification pathways? It depends on what you're juicing. And then the third one is: Are you excreting? And the answer is: If you're juicing and you're not getting the fiber, and you're on a calorie restricted diet, and you're not going into a sauna, you're not actively excreting. So I would argue that a juice fast is not a detoxification program either. So, so hopefully that makes sense for yeah, for sure. listeners to as a takeaway. I'm not saying that mine's the world's best detoxification program. What I want to say is. Here's if you want to evaluate whether drinking lemon juice in the morning is going to help detoxify. <laughs> That's you, my favorite one. <laughs> or, or, How? Or skin brushing. And I'm not knocking any of these things. Yeah. It's all in context. Uh, lemon juice in the morning or skin brushes or colonics or uh, you know juice fasting or whatever it might be. You have to look at those and try to apply those three principles and ask yourself, well, is this increasing mobilization? Is it optimizing detoxification pathways? And is it actively trying to excrete? And if it doesn't fit one of those things, then I don't, in my humble opinion, you can't call that a detoxification program. My, my takeaway listening to all the kind of principles you talked through is actually some of these recommendations, juice fasting in particular, are likely to do more harm than good. Because, oh, totally. Um, I mean, it might help the listeners, if, just to rewind for a second, when you said you looked at whether toxins are a problem, Whenever I talk about this stuff to kind of parents or grandparents, because, you know, for their generation, it, it hasn't always been that way because this is kind of, it's relatively new. You kind of sure. you say about 50, 60 years in, in, the, yep. in your presentation. So they kind of think we're bonkers for worrying about all the rubbish and tap water or anything and, and, you know, kind of talking about natural products and trying to avoid mercury, whatever it might be. And they're just, you know, it, even my takeaway from your course was it's still not enough and you're going to be exposed. So do what you can, but don't, you know, sweat the detail because the bigger wins are going to be made by some of the principles that you've talked through. But can you just right. explain how this has happened like at, throughout history, really? Because as I said, some people think we're just kind of making a big mountain out of a molehill. I guess the first thing you have to answer is, is what's a toxin? You know, that, that's actually kind of hard to define, quite honestly. For example, if our hormones are detoxified, in other words, biotransformation, 
but our hormones are detoxified. Therefore, are they toxic to the body? So there, there's there's some gray area as to what a toxin is. Some toxins, or let's we can call them xenobiotics or environmental pollutants, have existed from antiquity. So there's things off the periodic chart that we learned back in high school. You know, things like arsenic and things like mercury and lead and aluminum. Those are toxic in high amounts to the body. So those aren't new. I think one of the bigger problems that that we're seeing today are these synthetic chemicals that really started to come about pretty much post-World War II. And they some of some of the byproducts, I guess, if you will, after World War II is over, they had all these things to use. And so they started using them as pesticides because it killed pests. Well, pests are just small organisms. We're a large organism. <laughs> so uh, but it wasn't and, and it seemed fine, you know, and hindsight's always 2020. And so we make mistakes all the time as humans. It's part of being human. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but it wasn't until they had some some fairly major exposures. Like they'd have a spill, for example, of some of these chemicals and people get really sick that they said, well, maybe, you know, maybe these are a little toxic to humans, too. So th- that's really the history, I guess, um, if you will, in terms of, you know, the number that are out there today and the pounds that are released, you know, per year is it's kind of obscene. What is nice, I will say, is I think now there's some recognition of this and we're starting to see globally some attempts at trying to limit you know, that certain types or compounds or things that are that we're exposed to, although the some of these things exist so long in the environment that once they're there, they're going to be there for kind of a long time. And you kind of, you mentioned the <clears throat> dose makes poison, which is, you know, it's a really good point to highlight because it's almost inescapable, wouldn't you agree? On a daily basis, we're going to be exposed because they're oh, absolutely. inside our house, they're in our food, they're in our environment. Totally. Glad you asked that. The one thing I want to make clear is that this is by no means a scare tactic. I I hate fear-based motivation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It works for kids a little bit, you know, like uh, if you don't finish your dinner, then you're not going to get dessert kind of thing. That's like fearing that you're not going to get dessert. It it does motivate. But what this is not is we're all toxic. We're all going to die from this. We should freak out about everything. That is not what I'm trying to do. The way that I approach this is, is let's say with 100% certainty, there was going to be a tornado that ripped through your neighborhood tomorrow. That's just the fact. You could make the, the necessary precautions to protect yourself from it, or you could just suffer from whatever it's going to cause. I see it kind of as that, to be honest with you, that, that this is the reality, that when I looked at these 300 plus papers, we are all exposed. There's actually very little that you can do about it. There are things that you can do to mitigate that a bit. So instead of using traditional cleaning products in your house that there are some alternatives and i'll be really honest they don't work as well no it's it's yeah. true but so but this is but this is what i mean so you take the steps that you're willing to do or or some of the the natural care products the the cosmetics for example you know i i heard a friend one time years ago say it she said natural deodorant keeps you smelling natural meaning it doesn't really work as well as the as the real stuff <laughs> and if you're cool with that then that's fine if you don't want to stink use the regular stuff that's totally fine you know the so i say this because I, I believe that this is just our reality this this is our reality of modern times and people can do with that information whatever they want to. They can say, well, forget it. I'm going to continue to eat and drink the water and, and, and use the products and all these things, and that's fine. But if people are interested in, in perhaps optimizing their health a little bit, then they might want to consider you know, detoxification programs. But a detoxification program, I'll go ahead and say, is a waste of time if you're not going to try to stop the input coming into you in the first place. 
I just talked to a guy recently down in Houston, Texas. These planes spray, I don't even know what, but for mosquitoes down there because they're so rampant. And he's like, well, what can I do? I was like, move. I mean, that's <laughs> really. But if he's not willing to, then that's fine. And again, that's if a tornado is going to go through, you, you can either take the necessary precautions that you're comfortable with or deal with whatever repercussions might, might happen. So, so this is not meant as a scare tactic. We are all exposed. It does get stored in us. Where we live, how we live, will dictate to some degree how much exposure we have and of what. If you remember from that course, there was one paper that looked at higher socioeconomic status individuals yeah. versus lower. They both had exposure. It happened to be to different things because of the way that they lived their lifestyle and, and uh, you know, whether they applied sunscreen or not, whether they used pesticides in their home garden or not, or whether they ate fast food or not. But we're all exposed. And that, it's just it's just a reality today. And again, then with that information, we can decide what to do with that. Testing is quite popular, again, in, in kind of functional medicine, naturopathy world, you know, testing for either urine testing or blood testing or um, you know, can we tell if we're toxic? I, I mean, my takeaway was, what's the point? We are, you know, and, and you've kind of highlighted right. it from all the literature and the research anyway. But is there any tests that you kind of suggest doing or are you just like, what's the point? Again, you know? So that, that's a bigger conversation. The, the short answer is yes, that there's a blood chemistry software program that I think is very useful, especially for the, the cost is minimal. Yeah. That's the only one that I run. Now, aside from that, there are a lot of functional medicine labs. I've got to stop, run, got to stop you there, Brian, which is available via Nourish, Balance, Thrive. You've got to tell them yeah, where they can find it. <laughs> that's a whole other story, I mean, how it works and what it does. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But no, I, I have not, nor do I think I will ever run a toxic panel run by a functional lab because, A, we have that blood chemistry calculator, but B, again, I try not to make up stuff myself and I look to see what the scientific literature says. And there are too many confounding variables that allow those tests, in my opinion, to be worth the money. And they're a few hundred bucks each. In addition to the fact that gold standard is considered to be a fat biopsy, which is highly invasive. It's not available to everybody, but that's when they basically take a needle, stick it in your fat cells and, and pull out some tissue and then evaluate the tissue for environmental pollutants. Even that has reasons why it's not a great marker of testing for xenobiotic exposure. And the reason why is, you know, let's say you and I both ran the exact same, or how about you two? You guys are in the same room, same environment, same lifestyle, eating the same food. You guys both run a toxic panel, a toxin panel. Karis, you are uh, on a calorie-restricted diet. You time-restrict feeding, so you only eat in a certain window of time. And then you're, you're highly muscular but lean friends there um, <laughs> is, is constantly eating constantly in an anabolic state to keep his, his muscles big and strong and all these other things you pretty much nailed it by the way there <laughs> right there you go so and i'm not saying this is the case but what might happen then is because you're in that calorie restricted state and because that induces lipolysis and mobilization of these toxins your panel might come back really high like off the charts high versus if you're somebody's eating all the time then because they're in that anabolic fed storage state might come back as normal. And so then the practitioner looking at both of your panels is like, you are toxic. You need to detoxify. You're going to die like soon if you don't do something about this. And, well, you're fine. <laughs> so that's a big problem with that. Whereas you may actually have a lower what's called total body burden. 
because you're constantly mobilizing these and you're healthy and you're excreting them versus somebody else might be highly toxic, but it's all stored and that's not going to show up on the test. So for that reason, now I've seen the tests. I think that they can be valuable, but like I said, for myself, I, I would prefer to save the patient's money on a test that is questionable and the results that it's going to give you. And if there's any question about how reliable it is, then I don't see the point really in running it, if that makes sense. So no, I don't think that there's a really valid test. We do use the blood chemistry calculator because it is data that gets put out at no extra charge. It has just a standard blood chemistry. And I will say this, I just put together a case of somebody who did two of these uh, detoxification programs and showed a really significant decline in just about every single toxin uh, that's found in that panel. So, so that's the only one that I run. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I don't yeah. think there's a good valid assessment for it. I um, actually put both my parents' test results through it because they've both had cancer. They're kind of just aware of this stuff. And dad's is a kidney cancer, so again, arguably more kind of related to toxin exposure. And what came up on theirs was a lot of the health markers they were kind of getting good wellness scores, but was toxic exposure, toxin exposure. And the reason it was really helpful is my mum kind of listens to some of this stuff but sometimes I think she's just like oh that's lovely dear you know you're going to your college you learn these things you know doesn't and she she carries on painting the house without a mask she loves decorating and and upholstering and a lot of chemicals involved in that but when they kind of saw their test results my dad's kind of on board with it he's had a cancer and he's also very aware of the kind of roundup stuff which maybe we talk about as well and and he's kind of switched he was a gardener for years and used tons of that stuff and he's really kind of said no more that's it done and he's also like an outsource decoration but it was really helpful for them to kind of see it. And a big takeaway they've had is that they're going to get a sauna at home and start to sauna on yep. a regular basis. But they are going to do your detox. They're just waiting for a little window, they tell me, for, for 10 days to do oh, it. That's great. <laughs> well, and thanks for saying the sauna. The sauna, I mean, that's, again, if somebody is like, I sauna every day, that's great. But if you go back to those three principles, are you mobilizing? Well, if you're not in a calorie-restricted state or time-restricted feeding, then no, you're not mobilizing. Is that optimizing detoxification pathways? No. All it's doing is trying to excrete via one route only. Um, I didn't include it in the course, but there was an interesting study done on mice. Uh, It would be horrible to be a lab mice in a a future uh, life. They took two groups of mice and they induced uh, burns on one of the sets of mice. They injected them with certain chemicals and that they found that the, the mice that couldn't, because they had damage to their skin, couldn't excrete via skin methods, uh, had a much higher level of this toxin that they uh, had injected than did the other group. So that speaks to why a sauna, incidentally, is so critically important in a detoxification program as a major route of excretion. Anyhow, but yeah, so sauna is a, is a tool. But if that's all you do, you can't say that I'm detoxifying because I'm in the sauna. And one last thing, I'm sure I know the answer to this as well, but lots of people use hair mineral testing and, and you know, say that that's one of the, you know, you've, you've answered the question really, but just for people who've considered it or have been handed a hair mineral test that shows they've got high aluminium or whatever, same thing I'd imagine you're kind of saying it's not a true reflection of status or do you think there's something there in No, the, hair you know what, tests? for the hair mineral test, what we have as practitioners is a bunch of tools and tools are good for what they're designed to do. So you would not try to hammer in a nail using a screwdriver, for example. Screwdrivers are great for screws. They're horrible for cutting a board in half, for example. A a hair mineral test is a very interesting test, I will say. But I think to say that somebody is toxic merely because of one single hair mineral tissue test 
is way too big of a stretch. You cannot say that. What you can say is, is they're excreting a large amount of aluminum, but you can't say that they're loaded up with aluminum because of that. And you've probably seen this, but you can have somebody that has low levels and then they start to get healthier and then all of a sudden their levels go up. They're eating healthier. They're not exposed to as much, but all of a sudden aluminum, aluminum or, or mercury uh, goes up on a hair tissue test then that's an indication that maybe they were toxic, but now they're excreted. So no, just by itself, you can't use that as a, as a test of toxicity. And that only looks at metals. It doesn't even look at organic chlorines and, and yeah, organic, uh, or BC, PCBs and bisphenol and all the number of other things there are. So Brian, going back a little bit, when you mentioned the deodorant thing, that is quite <laughs> funny because we, we often have little barneys about this because I use probably a deodorant that's full of, God knows what, but it does the job. <laughs> and uh, I've always said to Carius, like, you know, I, I'm make, all make for... Make sure you have a client base, essentially. So. Yeah, exactly. You know, well, I, the, I, people, I, the people around you, thank you for that. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I've got to draw the line somewhere, you know. I mean, I, I tell you, I had a conversation with someone once about um, some coconut oil that I recommended them. And I was like, I'll get this coconut oil because we get a discount on it. And they turned around and said, yeah, the only problem is it comes in a plastic tub. Right. And I'm like right yeah it does and they're like yeah that concerns me because of the toxins in the plastic and this that and the other and i was like well two days ago you went out and got absolutely bladdered had a kebab on your way home and smoked god knows how many cigarettes yet you're worried about the toxins that are in the plastic of the coconut oil and i think sometimes people get so wrapped up in these kind of these silly little finer details and neglect the bigger picture and, and kind of bigger wins and more kind of like low hanging fruit, so to speak. So what would you say were kind of like bigger things people could do in terms of being better detoxifiers rather than worrying about whether their cooking oil has come in plastic or glass, et cetera? That's a big question, actually. Um, I think the first thing that people should do, actually, is to decide what they're willing to do in their life and environment to reduce their risk. So, you know, where does one work? Do you live in the city or the country? And, and each of those have, we live out more in the country and farmers spray all sorts of stuff around here. We're on well water. We have a filter, but you better believe that those pesticides are probably getting in, into our well water. Versus if you live in the city, then you have different types of exposures. Cleaning products are probably a major exposure. Cosmetic products that you're putting literally on your skin will be a fairly a large exposure. Um, <clears throat> there's things like plants that can clean the air and filters for water and organic food is likely better than conventional food or anything that's even processed in the first place. And you can have organic cereal, but that might have problems because it's processed. And so it's, it's just to have take an inventory of themselves, first of all, in their life, and then decide what they're willing to do and what kind of financial investment that might be. I mean, do you want to spend 200 bucks on a, on a reverse osmosis filter or, you know, so, so that's first because that will reduce your exposure to that. I will say those, those three things that I talked about, if you want to be a detoxifier, like you said, is one is you, you have to try to mobilize. And I think one of the easiest things would be to do time restricted feeding and to try to eat your food only within a six to eight hour window, which, you know, according to the literature, helps promote metabolic flexibility and lipolysis and all these things so that you are in a fasted state at some point that you're not constantly eating, that you're in a fasted state. And that should help with mobilization exercise because it, it helps with uh, lipolysis, will help with uh, mobilization as well. Some of the best things that people can eat 
uh, turns out are the cruciferous vegetables. And there's some pretty good studies on those. So lots of things like Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, broccoli, cabbage, uh, garlic, onions, all those have been shown to help increase certain detoxification pathways. In terms of beverages, uh, honeybush tea and rubybose tea, both in some rodent studies, help increase certain detoxification pathways. And then the last bit for excretion, you have to make sure that you're drinking enough water so you're urinating enough. Sweating is phenomenal. Now, you can sweat a lot. You know, I, <laughs> I get some funny questions from people that, that do the course and don't have a sauna. They're like, we have a really hot attic. Can I just sit up in my attic for <laughs> a half hour? I'm like, if you sweat a lot, I don't care what you do. Really, mm-hmm. it's just it's about sweating. The saunas are great because you can control for a little bit. But, you know, if, if you could want to crank up your heat and put on a rubber suit and jump around a little bit and you want to sweat that way, go for that. that is, sweating is good. But a major route of excretion, and I actually I'll just, I guess I'll briefly touch on this. Different toxins are excreted in the body in different ways. Some of them seem to be preferentially excreted via sweat and urine, for example. Other ones don't. They don't go out that way. And in fact, instead, they go out via bile. Your liver makes the substance called bile. It gets stored in the gallbladder. And then when you eat, it gets squeezed into your intestines. And and bile tends to recirculate many times, including what it's holding on to, which can be these toxins. So to take uh, binding agents, which the, the easiest one is fiber, is a lot of people, you know, are nowadays are pretty deficient when it comes to fiber. But in terms of everyday detox, if you will, to do those things that I talked about, mobilization, calorie restriction, time-restricted feeding, exercise, eating a lot of certain vegetables will tend to be helpful. Possibly drinking those teas will be helpful if somebody just wants to do this on a daily basis. And then in terms of excretion, make sure you're sweating, make sure you're urinating enough, and then really try to increase things that will bind onto bile and pull it out of your body so that it doesn't recirculate as much. Also, can I ask your thoughts on, um, that's a great point, charcoal. There's actually um, a product over here now, because I know you kind of recommend charcoal on the on the protocol as well. There's a product over here now that's more, um, I don't know if you have it over there, called Tox Prevent, which is a type of clay. I don't know if you've seen mm. any kind of research on clay versus charcoal in terms of kind of binding. And I didn't include clay because I didn't find any studies on it. Oh, that's interesting. That was the, the whole reason why I included what I did is, is I, I wanted to have some justification for including it. So things like zeolite, I, I didn't really see any good papers on zeolite, betonite clay or any of the clays. I know, I know, well, and, it, and it's interesting because we can look at the properties of something in outside of the body in a Petri dish but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it's going to work in the body. Antioxidants are a classic example of that. Antioxidants inside of a Petri dish scavenge free radicals. They don't do that in the body. That's one of the bigger myths that's currently out there. So we understand the properties of clay. And while it sounds good, I, did, I didn't see any papers on it. I'm not opposed to it. I think that it's fine as a binding agent, especially during an active detox. I would be concerned with some of those things regularly because of how well that they potentially bind and therefore you're not digesting or not absorbing, I should say, certain compounds that you'd otherwise want to absorb. So I didn't include clay because I didn't see any good studies on it. And one thing that you provide as part of the detox is a a kind of spreadsheet for people to do their macros. So how to get in that kind of, you know, kind of fasting mimicking calorie restriction. And then you give everyone 
protein target. Can you just talk briefly? Because if someone's doing a juice fast, <laughs> there's zero protein in that. Why you really want to emphasize the role of protein? In- so the, the reason why I did that, so juice fast, so there's phase one, phase, well, there's phase zero, phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase two, I'm not going to say is the most important, but phase two is a big one. And when people typically are deficient in some detoxification abilities, it seems that phase two is one of the bigger ones. Men, and there's a number of different specific phase two detoxification pathways we could talk about. But those are very amino acid driven and or things that come along with certain amino acids. So, for example, methionine. Methionine as a methyl group, as a sulfur group. You need methyl groups for one of the phase two pathways. You need sulfur groups for another different pathway. Um, glycine is an amino acid that's relatively abundant in most uh, animal flesh that is helpful for another detoxification pathway. And so I don't know that everybody needs protein when they detoxify. It just depends on their their stat, their nutritional status beforehand. So if you take a, a vegetarian or a vegan who may be somewhat protein, and I'm not saying they're bad diets, but maybe somewhat protein deficient or amino acid deficient in the first place, if they decide they want to detox, then they may be severely limiting their ability to actually detox because they're lacking certain amino acids. A lot of those phase two pathways are very amino acid driven. So that that was the primary reason for the the protein uh, consumption. In addition to the fact that, you know, on that, you don't necessarily want it to be a highly catabolic, for some people, catabolic diet. And so it, it helps to maintain certain processes in the body. Speaking of time-restricted feeding, actually, because uh, Brian, you mentioned earlier about being like hypocaloric uh, diet, you know, so in some, some kind of like calorie deficit. If, because obviously assuming someone can be lean and still yeah. be pretty toxic, would that person still need to be in a deficit or would it just be a case of the restricted feeding windows that you mentioned? So that, that's a really interesting, I don't have the answer for that. Generally, this is a generalization. But generally speaking, the leaner somebody is, the probability of them being less toxic is better. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The research is conflicted on this to some degree. So that's not to say I'm lean, therefore I'm not toxic. Because yeah. it can be stored in a number of tissues, including visceral adipose tissue, of which somebody may be able to not pinch very much of subcutaneous, but they have a little bit of visceral. And it can store it there as well. It can store it in fat tissue anywhere. So... <laughs> Again, that's, a, that's an overgeneralization, but I find that people that are relatively lean have less storage. They, they have less storage and therefore are probably not as toxic as somebody who has a more body fat. In terms of your question, from what I understand that you're asking is can somebody calorie restrict or time restrict feeding and then assume that they're okay in that because they're already lean? I have a feeling this is a personal question. No, 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 no. <laughs> so he doesn't no, need to no. drop the calories no, or do the fat, but can do the time restricted. So you're in lipolysis for a large part of your day. Well, so. okay. Actually, no, I, I, I have a better way of answering this. Now, this was a, a, a rodent study again, and so you have to take that into consideration a little bit, although there's some evidence this also happens in humans. And there was one really interesting paper that what they did was they, they made mice uh, do a yo-yo diet. So they did calorie restriction and then they did excess feeding, and then they did calorie restriction, and they did excess feeding. And what they found was, is that on the calorie-restricted portion, that their xenobiotic levels went up in their blood. But then when they ate, then those xenobiotics went into a different tissue. That makes sense. So not that that mice have love handles, but let's say it came (laughs) out of the love handle fat, and then when they eat, 
it goes into the brain or it goes into, you know, some other fat somewhere else in the body. So if you have periods of eating, you will have less mobilization and lipolysis, period. But it's, it's sort of the length of lipolysis. So if you time restrict feed for six to eight hours, the time that you're eating, assuming that it's not calorie restriction itself, then you're probably in a state of mobilization for that 16 right. hours, right. but then maybe less during those eight, right. depending on how much you're eating. During the fasting mimicking diet, uh, you're probably, because it's, it's so low calories and, and so little protein, you're probably still in somewhat of a fasted state. If that answers your question. Yeah, no, so. it does, yeah. Because, I mean, because obviously when we talk about calorie deficits, we normally associate that with weight loss, with fat loss. Right. So, yeah, that does answer the question. Because my question was, if there was someone who didn't want nor need to lose weight, so therefore there was no reason for them to be in a calorie deficit. Got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was a personal question. <laughs> so so you, when you eat, you eat whatever calorie amount you need in order to maintain or, or stay in that anabolic state from a hypertrophy uh, point of view, then you'd eat. You could eat that 3,000, 3,500 calories in that six to eight hour window. Cool. And then assume and hope that in the, the rest of that time that you're in that state of mobilization and lipolysis. That makes sense. And surely like a big takeaway from that research, although it's in mouse studies at the moment, is that yo-yo dieting as humans, so kind of doing all these like, oh, I'm on a 12-week this diet and then gaining all the weight back and that kind of thing, is actually going to worsen their exposure, would you say? And just actually being consistent. Yeah, so, this is me leading no, the best bet. Yeah. <laughs> so and on the, on the programs, um, I'm going to be adding a bonus video coming up in the next, I don't know, hopefully a couple of weeks if I can get around to it. There are some extremely compelling and kind of frightening studies, actually, suggesting that, this is crazy, that fat loss, just weight loss or fat loss in general, actually increases the risk of things like cancer, like dementia, like cardiovascular risk long term for this very reason. And the, and the papers say, state this as a reason, that because of xenobiotic accumulation, exposure and accumulation, that if somebody in midlife decides that they want to lose weight, that they're increasing their risk of things like dementia, which they have studies on this now, increasing things like uh, like dementia later on in life. And the thought is, is because of weight loss that these things are now being exposed to the point that, and I know that in the fitness industry, this goes counter to everything that we would like to believe, but that steady weight gain, and I'm not saying being obese, but steady weight gain throughout the lifespan decreases those issues, incidentally, which, you know, we're like, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm not going to be fat when I'm 80. But what it, it's not saying be fat, it's saying to steadily lose and steady gain weight as you age is protective over these things. Oh, wow. And I'll be showing these studies in the, in, as a bonus video. But what they don't talk about, and I think the thing that's missing, the thing that I have some evidence on, is that if you do a well-designed detoxification program, while doing a weight loss or fat loss program that you're likely excreting these things and therefore limiting potential for some of those things to happen. I mean, this is, this is like mind blowing. Well, wait a minute. So fat loss increases your risk of these horrible things later on. I mean, the implications of this are, are horrendous in my opinion, yeah. but the thing that they don't talk about is that we can, and there's some proof to this, that we can detoxify the body when these things are being mobilized. And so I would say that, some of these papers even say that maybe we shouldn't even have people lose weight because of these risks, which is, again, kind of mind-blowing when you consider all these fat loss programs and weight loss programs and all these things. But I guess I'll just summarize it to say this. If I were to go on a weight loss or a fat loss program, I would not do it 
would not do it without supporting the detoxification pathways. Absolutely would not. Because levels, every time you drop calories in every mammal study, levels go up, period. And as I just talked about the yo-yo diet, if you don't get rid of those things, they stay in there and they can go in another tissue. So for me personally, and I've got a little bit to lose, I told I have five kids and they've they've packed the pounds on me for me. <laughs> but if I were, I would not do that without supporting detoxification at the same time. And it's it's interesting that actually on your program, supplements are quite limited, I would say, compared to what you're trained in in kind of functional medicine, this big list of really expensive supplements, whereas you kind of emphasize what are the key things you've got to be doing lifestyle-wise or more kind of nutrition-wise and not doing? Um, the supplements are mostly binders. Yeah. If you are mobilizing and you're eating the right foods and drinking the right things to help support detoxification pathways, you got to get rid of this stuff. And so, no, I, I don't have milk thistle in mind, which I know is sacrilegious in this industry mm -hmm. when it comes to detox or curcumin or green tea because the evidence, there's no proof that they inhibit necessarily, but there's a strong question about it. And if there's any question about it, I don't think it deserves a place in a detox program. And just okay, one something I want to talk about, and then probably should wrap up at the same time. But one that I was really surprised to see was St. John's Wort. Um, and you know, I won't talk about all the others, but St. John's Wort was one that I was just like, I have not seen that for years. And, you know, just mood health is the only thing I've ever been yeah, kind of trained in. Yeah, that's what it's going to be associated yeah. with, isn't it? Well, and, and, you know, sometimes when you come up with something and nobody else is doing it, you start to wonder if you're nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Because I've never seen St. John's Word in any detoxification program. But, mm -hmm. but as I talked about, it's probably the best studied botanical out there anywhere. Because, solely because, it is so potent at increasing uh, detoxification of drugs. And this is why, so when I say it's studied, I mean conventional medicine is studying this. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not the, you know, the, these herbal folks. It's conventional medicine saying... Here's this herb that if you take this, increases excretion of medications. And that's what they're interested in. They, if they're giving a medication, they want it to stay in the body so it can do what it does. And so they've, they've studied well St. John's Word, and it absolutely increases the detoxification pathways. And so, and that's what I'm saying. I mean, unless I'm missing something horrible, and I looked, it's so known as a detoxification herb that conventional medicine has studied it like crazy. St. John's wort, in many cases, is the only herb that's found in a pharmacology textbook as, yeah. as don't take this with yeah, this medication. Yeah, yeah. Say, some, some of them have grapefruit juice because yeah. that's pretty well yeah. known to inhibit phase one. Um, some of the newer ones, uh, pomegranate, does the same thing as, uh, as grapefruit juice. And it just depends on the text. But in some texts, St. John's wort is the only herb in there because if – Patients take certain medications and St. John's Wort, they're effectively taking a lower dose because they're excreting it faster. That's a detox herb, in my opinion, then. I brought all the, the supplements that you mentioned, and they were all in our cupboard. And Matt came to me one day, and he was like, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? <laughs> he was like, why have we got St. John's Wort in the cupboard? It's like, are you depressed? I was like, no. I'm like, so why I got it. But yeah, I was just surprised to see it. I'd never seen it in that, that context before, but... Neither have I. That's why I wondered if I was missing something. But everything I know about it, it deserves a spot there. So, Brian, why, why don't you um, tell our listeners a little bit more about where they can, you know, find out a little bit more about your your detox program? Sure. So, if they go to drwalsh.com, just drwalsh.com backslash detox, 
or a forward slash. I don't know a slash is very well, but anyhow, some backslash detox. Then there will be this little picture of me, but two links down below. One is for practitioners. One is for non-practitioners. Each I did two courses. I started with the practitioner version. About that's what I like. I like to teach practitioners. I think that that's way more fun. I like to try to help people through people, if that makes sense. So if yeah. I can train. 10 practitioners who each see 10 people, that's 100 people that I potentially help. That makes me happy on the inside and sleep well. On the other hand, I know that some people don't have access to practitioners, so I I made a watered-down version, a non-practitioner version. It's more watered down. I still have the scientific literature in there to back up what I'm saying. It's like four hours of video versus nine. It's not nearly as technical. walks you through step-by-step what to do. Uh, for example, the practitioner version also contains the non-practitioner version, though. So you can actually get both. Yeah, so that's where they go, and they can they can check out the website and see if either one works for them. What other uh, courses are you kind of developing in the future? Because I know your wife kindly hinted at a few that that got me very excited. Well, uh, we're yeah, we're we're redoing things a little bit. My first course I ever did years ago was "Fat Is Not Your Fault." We're gonna. Uh, going to add that to the website that's the starter course that's if somebody is a fitness professional and just wants to learn a little bit about a lot so a little bit about thyroid a little bit about adrenals a little bit about glucose regulation gut dysfunction toxicity liver mental emotional neurotransmitters that's all in one course and then the next course would be level one which is biochemistry it takes a little bit deeper the next course which my wife is she's my slave driver um, <laughs> is she wants me to have done in the next two months is level two which will be functional physiology it's like fat is not your fault, but kind of on steroids. So just much deeper on you know kidneys and how we make blood and all these different things. Level three, she wants them by the end of the year, and that'll be all on blood chemistry. Um, I have a mitochondria course that I just came out with, which has gotten some pretty good feedback. I have that glucose course you talked about. I may come out with a course on fatty liver, maybe adrenals. Uh, it's kind of on the list. And then uh, level four eventually will be on organic acid testing and maybe a couple other advanced tests. But You're going to be busy. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have no idea. Yes, but it's fun and it's all for a good reason. So that's, it makes it worth it. Awesome. Well, we're hoping to get you over here at some point to do uh, some courses in the UK. But if you're up for it, we definitely get you back on. We could do a whole one on adrenal fatigue. That'd be a cool episode. Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of No, no, no. no. I, was, I was just thinking, like, um, probably get you back on for numerous different topics to be honest with you um but no brian thank you very much buddy it's been an absolute oh, it's uh, a pleasure pleasure to actually finally meet you albeit virtually because i've kind of virtually. heard your voice like in the background when mm-hmm. kerry's been doing your course for the last god knows how many months so uh but no it's been really really interesting guys thank you all for listening if you have got any questions for brian i'm sure there's a contact link of some sort on yep. your website Um, you know feel free to reach out if you have enjoyed this episode as always share it with friends if you haven't left a review over on itunes for the podcast please do it because it really really helps us stay on those fancy charts on we're back in the hot what's hot list aren't we We on fit food radio what's hot (laughs) on itunes which is uh pretty awesome but but yeah guys thank you very much once again for for listening massive thank you to brian walsh and we will see you in episode 107 see ya